open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be beginning this morning in verse 18. I guess it's not morning. I'm recording this at night. Uh, I do miss saying that. Um, I miss the flock and miss being at the church. So we are praying about uh, returning to the church. I'm thinking about probably May 10th on Sunday morning. So if you listen to the messages and you're part of the church, you know we'll be there probably May 10th. I'll tell you for sure next week uh, what we're going to do. But that looks to be we need to get back out there in public. We need to get back out there in the fellowship of the brethren. And so I'm praying about that, and uh, we'll give you a thumbs up or thumbs down next week. Want to be good neighbors, but we also do not want to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. And as these uh, one world government deceived, useful idiots of the devil continue to plot and plan, I don't think they even realize that uh, after they get into power, there'll be nothing else to rule over because they'll have destroyed everything with viruses and uh, destruction and creating in the heart of men a laziness where they don't even want to work. So, um, but that's why God laughs at them and mocks them and their strong delusion. But that's another sermon. So what we'll do is look at what we've been looking at. We've been looking at the heart of men, the heart of men that are around as Jesus is here. And we've seen that, you know, he had he had healed a, a leper back in chapter 1. And he'd actually even told him, don't tell anybody, but go your way. And, and as a testimony to the priest, offer the sacrifices. But the guy just couldn't contain it. He went out and told everybody. And it caused such... Uh, commotion and attention to Jesus's ministry that he had to go back into deserted places and he was there for a while and then we see that in chapter 2 as he come back into Capernaum where his his hub of his ministry is pretty much he's got a, a house there whether it's Peter's or his own we don't know but he's staying there and so many people were in the house that the house was full when they knew Jesus was there because he's healing. Now, not everybody's coming to him for the right reasons, but everybody is coming to him. They're just all coming to him. And we see in the crowd, there's some scribes, there's some other people there that we don't know their hearts. But then comes these four men carrying their buddy on a cot and he has paralysis. He's got palsy. Uh, some type of a problem that we're not sure what it is, but he can't get up. Uh, and so they get there and they can't get him into Jesus. And so they said, no way, buddy, we're not going home. They go up on the roof. They tear back the tiles and the grass or whatever is there for the roof. And they lower him down. They got these ropes. They got uh, maybe fishing ropes and tackle. I don't know. And, and they lowered him right down into the presence of Jesus. They knew that they could get him into the presence of Jesus, that Jesus would heal him. And little did they know that Jesus first healed his soul. Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And that really revealed the hearts of not only the man, because God's not going to forgive his sin unless he has by faith believed that he's the Messiah, one. Two, the scribes began to reason in their hearts right in front of Jesus. They weren't bold enough to speak, but they're just there kind of just spying the situation out. 
And Jesus speaks to them when he sees what's in their heart. Being God, he knew what was in their hearts. So he asked them, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on the earth. He looked at the man and said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And I believe that that's what Jesus would say to every paralyzed soul. We've been paralyzed by sin. Uh, every, we, we, we can't walk spiritually because of sin. And I believe he would say to us, rise, take up our bed and walk. To go and tell others that he forgives everyone who will come to him and believe in him. But, of course, he immediately arose and went out. They were mesmerized. They glorified God. And then he goes out to another place, and we have the testimony of him seeing Levi, which is Matthew to us, the Gospel of Matthew. He's a tax collector. Uh, and um, he says, follow me. He just looks him in the eye and says, follow me. So we see the heart of Matthew because he instantly gets up and follows him. Tax collectors were hated. They were worse than sinners. Tax collectors usually were Jews who were appointed by Rome or had a, bought a position by Rome to collect taxes. And Rome would set two shekels. And if they could get four or five and they would raise this, they, they, then they would get that. And that was all theirs. And so people hated them because of the way that they cheated them out of their money. And so he instantly knew that he was hopeless and helpless and needed to know Jesus so he could go to heaven. And he repented and followed him. And he didn't just follow him, but we see his heart further. That he invited all of his friends and threw a big party for Jesus. So that Jesus could speak. He's in the house again. So Jesus could speak to them. And again, alas, we see scribes and Pharisees there. And they, they say to his disciples, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. And he said he didn't come to call uh, the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. See, it's sinners that need a doctor, and he's the great physician. If we think that we're okay, we think we don't need to go to the doctor, then we're the ones that really have our sin. We all have issues. We all are being sanctified. We've been given a position of righteousness. We've been The power of sin has been taken. The penalty has been taken. But in it, now he wants to take the practice of sin from our lives as he sanctifies and cleanses us, as he washes us with the water through the word, as we follow him, as Matthew did, as we get in the way with him. He makes us more like himself, where we learn to have the heart of God. So we see in the heart of these people, the critical. We're seeing the heart of faith where the men would bring their friend. The heart of, of, of faith where they would trust him to forgive sins, trust him to heal. The heart of faith where uh, uh, um, Matthew would call his friends to come see him. And we see healing. And we continue with hearts. And we're going to really conclude with this about the hearts uh, uh, today in our lesson. So let's read and it is Mark 2, 18 and following. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. They came and said to him, Why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins. Now it happened as they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those who were with him, how they went into the house of God in the days of Abathar the priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some of those gave to those with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are guarding our hearts and protecting us. Help us to surrender to you. Help us to allow your word to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And help us to obey your word. But we pray for your power and your might, for your strength, for such a time as this. Uh, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, back in 2.18 of Mark, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now notice this point, first thing, is that when Jesus was eating with Pharisees, or excuse me, with uh, tax collectors and sinners, they asked Jesus' disciples. And they tried to accuse Jesus. Now, they're not fasting, so they come and they ask his disciples to accuse the teacher, or, or vice versa. Notice how they're trying to sow seeds of division in between the two. Be careful how you gossip, how you talk, how you speak about somebody. And they say one thing to this person, to the disciples, about Jesus. Then they say something to Jesus about the disciples. They're going to say the same thing to them about the grain on the Sabbath day. And they just go back and forth sowing seeds of division. So that, And that works really good when you're dealing with man and flesh. You can divide and sow discord, and God hates someone who sows discord. It's one of the seven things that poetically he says in Proverbs that he hates, is that dissension. 
We need to be very careful how we do that because when you go to one person and go, did you hear what Greg said? And you go to another person, you say, and you know that Greg said, or you go back and forth. You're sowing dissension. You're weaving a web that can cause huge destruction in the heart of man. We'd be better off to, to sow good truth and good word and to overlook transgression and minister to people's hearts. But these here are underneath the, the, the sway of the wicked one. These are listening to the enemy. And so they cause lots of division. So now let's look. Uh, they're, they're fasting, obviously. Um, John's, some of the John's disciples, John's in jail at this time. John the Baptist we're talking about. And he's still in jail. I don't think Herod has cut off his head at this time. And so they're fasting. And so are the Pharisees. And it seems like some of them didn't. Most of them came over to Jesus when John was arrested. And so it seems like they're following the, the religious practice of fasting, which the uh, uh, Pharisees did, or the Jewish nation, they did two times uh, a week at this time. Um, let's see, let's look at Luke 16, it looks like I have marked out. Is that right? No, Luke 18. Uh, next, cha next book over, Luke 18, Dr. Luke. Beginning in 9, 18, 9. And Jesus is speaking to them. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Notice who they're trusting in. Instead of trusting in God, they're trusting in their own works. It's their religion. It's the tradition. It's what they've made up. They're trusting in self, not in God or his word. That they were righteous. They trusted in themselves for their righteousness. They're self-righteous and despised others. That's what we see the Pharisees and scribes doing with Jesus as he sets down with sinners and tax collectors. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Something they did three times a day. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector, like Matthew. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Uh, God, I thank you, so he's praying with his self-righteousness, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector, so he points at him maybe, I fast twice a week. This was something that they did religiously. I give tithe of all that I possess. And so I just wanted you to see that. But the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. In humility, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, he knew he needed a doctor. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that there was nothing good in him, that none are righteous. No, not one. But the Pharisee who was practicing his own self-righteousness by keeping the works of the law, by doing what he thought was right, his own little standards of goodness, he had become to deceive his own heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what we should say. Even being saved, we know we're saved, but we're still sinners saved by grace. And we still have the sin nature. If we're not careful and keep it in the grave, it'll rise up. And it will lead us astray and deceive us, just like the Pharisee. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I really took you there to show you the whole text of the heart, but to see that they were fasting at that time two times a day, um, or excuse me, two times a week. And really, there's actually, if you search the Bible, there's really no mandate to fast. There's really no biblical command or mandate anywhere to fast, unless, of course, you looked at Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23. I'm not going to turn there for sake of time. You can read that. Leviticus 16, 29 to 31, Leviticus 23, 26 to 32. They both talk about the Day of Atonement. If you didn't get those references, look up the Day of Atonement. It was uh, the, the seventh month they, on the tenth day. Uh, they were supposed to afflict their souls. And, and there are those that say that part of afflicting soul, which meant to bow down, to abase yourself, to humble yourself, included fasting and doing without. But the only time they were supposed to afflict their souls was on the Day of Atonement. Every other festival, every other feast was a celebration of knowing God. But the Day of Atonement was, was a time where, where we think they would fast. Now, there's no command to do it, just to afflict your souls. And fasting uh, became a religious practice where they did it twice a week. And, and they let, look, look here, let's look at Matthew 6. They let everybody see, and I'll come back to that point. It's Matthew 6, even Jesus. See, Jesus fasted 40 days. Jesus was in no way con condemning fasting in his answer. And we'll see his answer in a minute. And I could be a little bit ahead of myself since I didn't read his answer. But 6.16, he says, Moreover, when you fast, so we should fast, do not be like the hypocrites. He could have put the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious traditionalists in there with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. See, they would fast as a religious work to look pious and to look like they were doing something to be godly. And really, there's nothing we can do to be godly except believe in the finished works of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Fasting, I believe, is a... Uh, it, it's to deny yourself when you look it up. I mean, if fasting means to abstain from food. It means not eating. Now, I know we've turned it into a lot of other things. Have we become like the Pharisees in the tradition? I mean, fasting is really a way of beating the flesh into subjection. It's a way of, of afflicting yourself and saying, I am not going to eat, but it's a physical way of doing to reach a spiritual problem. The Day of Atonement, as we were talking about, was the day that the high priest would make an offering for himself and then go in and make a, an offering for the entire nation for the sins of the nation. And fasting was really, if, if it was meaning afflicting yourself, was tied to mourning over sin. Fasting is tied to getting your heart right with God. And this is a text about the heart. So it's a physical denial of self to be right with God in a spiritual sense, to work with your heart. 
Listen to me. That's what Jesus, when he fasted 40 days, he was drawing near to God. The devil tried to come and, and attack him and tempt him. And he used the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to defend himself. And really, fasting is not bending God. It's not twisting God. It doesn't change God at all. It's, it's a physical way of you and me to deal with our spiritual sin, our spiritual lives. Now, I know we've brought it into a place where we can fast all kinds of different things, but the Bible clearly says it's food. Fasting food. You're starving the body of something, taking it away to prove to the body that man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're reminding yourself, if you will, that we are spiritual and not physical. We're not to regard anything as physical anymore because we're in a spiritual battle. And we're reminding ourselves that we need to be drawing near to God and mourning over our sin. And so fasting was really tied with the Day of Atonement. Now in a little bit we'll come back to that because they began to fast pretty seriously every month when they were in captivity. And we're going to go look at that in a little bit. But right now I just want you to see that Jesus wasn't against uh, them fasting. But they're accusing them of doing something wrong because they're not following the tradition of men. And, and, and Jesus would tell them, listen, you take the tradition of men and you make it greater than the word of God, your religious practices. And that really makes you apostate. They became an apostate people who had forgotten God. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. They were fasting for show. They were fasting and tithing and, and practicing their religious uh, 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 practice uh, and had forgotten about God. They had made up their own little system of religion. And um, anybody who doesn't stay in the Word of God in any uh, uh, church that's not living according to the Word of God will do the same thing. They'll begin to make up their own little rules, their own little dress codes, their own little buildings that are supposed to look like this and that and the other thing. And that becomes more important to them than the heart of man, the soul of man, the work of God, doing it His way for His glory. So these who are supposed to be the religious authority are seeing Jesus doing miracles. He's seeing Jesus speak the truth of the kingdom of God and they miss it. They don't even understand it because they're so far away from God that they can't hear God. So they come and they ask, um, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast, Jesus? Aha. Uh -huh. See, because they're looking to accuse him. They're looking to show that he's an insurrectionist. They're looking to show that there's something wrong with him. And yet he stands before them, God in the flesh, telling them truth, telling, doing things in miracles. They, they missed the miracle uh, of the man who was a paralytic with palsy and stood up and walked away in front of him. They missed the miracle of a tax collector standing up and walking away from all of his money and his possessions and following Jesus. They miss the miracle of a soul being changed right before their eyes because they were so stuck on their own power and their own rules 
They were so stuck in their own tradition and system. They were stuck on doing what they wanted to do instead of doing what God had called them to do. And that was to live with him in a relationship uh, according to the old covenant. Of course, it's already apostate. They've already walked away. And Jesus is here to, to bring a new covenant. And that's what we're seeing. It's in the fullness of time. It's, it's already what God knew was going to happen. And Jesus answered them, verse 19. Notice this. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends, children, King James, of the bride chamber, mine says bridegroom, it's bride chamber, fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, I don't, that's an allusion there to his death, burial, and resurrection. He's going to be taken away. He's laying his life down for the sins of the world, but they're going to be confused when they arrest him and beat him and mock him and, and hang him on a tree. And he takes our curse for us. Then they will fast. Let's look at this. What does he say? Because it's, it gets confusing just a little bit. And I think uh, in this sense, this is a really bad translation, the New King James. The King James gives us a better translation. I mean, I kind of like, can the friends of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But, it, but the word is children in the King James. And, and interestingly enough, it means son. It means kinship. It can mean a child or, or children, but I don't even like the word children because really it's the exact same word that is used for, uh, that, that Jesus uses when he says son of man. When he calls himself the son of man, it's the same word. So it's the word for son. So it can be a child uh, or, or, or children of God, but I believe it's the word for son, and it probably should be uh, read, can the son of the, or the sons of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Listen, fasting, again, is a physical uh, practice to deal with a spiritual problem, sin if it hooks up to the Day of Atonement. And God is with them. It's to draw near to God, and God is right there with them. The one they want to be married to, and that's what the illusion is, because bridegroom or bride chamber both come from the same word. Uh, it, it, it comes from the word that means to veil as a bride, uh, nuptu, which is Latin for Mary. It means a young married woman as veiled, including a betrothed, a bride, it implies a son's wife. And really, it, since Jesus is the Son of God and the church becomes his bride, he's saying, since the bride is right here with the bridegroom, why would you fast? That's the whole purpose in life, is for us to one day cross the finish line and enter into his rest and consummate the wedding. Isn't that amazing to be in the Father's house? Why would you fast when He's right here? See, we hang on to this world instead of looking to be with Him. 
which is the finish line, where we need to be, where we long to be. So Jesus said there's no reason to fast. There's no reason when he's right here with them. But when he's taken, there'll be more reason to fast. Now, again, like I said, I like friends. I like uh, uh, even sons or children. Here, the sons and the children and, and the friends, they're all supposed to be uh, uh, part of the wedding party. They're helping with the wedding party. They're helping get people ready. So when you and I become friends of God, which he says, I call you friends in John, or we are children of God because we believe, we become sons of God because we believe, then now we are supposed to be preparing ourselves, allowing the Holy Spirit to prepare us for the wedding supper of the Lamb. But we're all supposed, also supposed to go and tell others and invite them to the wedding supper. Invite them to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the wedding party would do. And if we are the bride, everything that we're doing, we're adorning ourselves for that day. We're preparing ourselves. We're allowing the Holy Spirit as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in us to wash us and cleanse us and clothe us in Christ's righteousness to make us like Him so that when we see Him face to face, you ever notice how when somebody's married, they begin as they get older, they look alike, they act alike. There's a lot of commonality with them. We're supposed to be coming like, becoming like our bridegroom. Becoming like Christ. So, in the accusation, they didn't understand. Because they didn't see that he was God. They didn't see that he was the Messiah with them. Again, he's trying to let them know. He's telling them truth. But their hard hearts, they cannot understand the truth that's being portrayed right in front of them. The voice of God speaking to them. And they say they're worshiping God when they're really worshiping themselves. Just as we read over in Luke, they wanted to worship themselves. They were, they were serving themselves. They, were, they wanted to justify themselves. So everything that they did was about them. They separated from people that they called sinners and didn't know they were sinners. Sounds a lot like a church system that we live in today. 21. He gives two, really what he does is he gives two... Uh, um, I guess, parables to uh, analogies. Um, and I like them. I, don't, I can't tell you I fully understand them. But it, they're clear. No one sews a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins. Now, I believe that, 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 you know, you can think of these as the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant, the New Testament. But in many ways, he's talking about their hearts. Their hearts have become so hard that they're not pliable. Their hearts are not receiving the Word of God. And he can't, he can't put new uh, truth, bring the, new, bring the Messiah to them, bring, bring everything that's going on. They're not receiving it. And so he has to give them a new heart. And that's what we get when we receive God, when we believe in the blood of Jesus. We get a new heart, and he writes his word on our hearts, not on stone and on hard hearts. 
Now he is making allusion again to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but there's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. The Old Testament did exactly what it's supposed to do, and it still does exactly what it's supposed to do. Not one jot or tittle will be done away with. Jesus said, I didn't come to, to do away with it. I come to fulfill the Old Covenant, the, the, the law. He came to fulfill it. It's not being done away with. He hasn't come to destroy it. He comes to fulfill it. It did exactly. It was supposed to lead us to Christ. It was supposed to lead us to uh, the, the knowledge that, that sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is sin. And we need a Savior because we can't keep the law. So therefore, then when Christ comes, there He is. The law was supposed to cover so that God wouldn't have to punish. It was a kofar. It covered. The sacrifice is covered under the sacrificial law. Until Christ came to take away the sins of the world. And you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Old, hard leather that they do from ox or goats or something and and it would dry up over time well if you put new wine in it it still needs to ferment it's going to swell and it would burst same thing if you put a new piece of cloth on an old one as it as it does what it's going to do because the old one's already in place like their tradition like their laws like their burdens they piled upon men all of their stuff is in place and they're stuck in their system so they can't receive the new Spirit. They can't receive a new heart unless they surrender all of their tradition. Now, it's interesting that he says, if you put that new wine um, in an old wineskin, it'll be ruined. In the King James, it's marred. It actually means to destroy fully or to perish. Listen to it. Destroy fully or perish. So that proves that Jesus did not come to destroy the law. Because he would have put the wine in it and just destroyed it. He gives a parable that shows that he wasn't there to destroy it. He's there to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. In fact, the law is still leading people now to know that they need Jesus because if they're trying to keep the law by the works of their own hands and justify themselves, they're going to come to a place where their hard hearts are going to realize they're just not right and they need Jesus. And he's the only help that they have, the blood of Jesus. He's the only hope. So uh, John Excuse me, Romans 10.4 tells us that uh, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you believe that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ's blood paid for your sins, then the law is the end. It's over with. It's the end of the law. But it doesn't mean the law has been done away with. It still exists. It's still there. It was still perfect. It was still God's heart. It just so happens that we, sinful man, cannot keep the law. We cannot obey the law. We fall short. And Christ came and kept it perfectly and then gave us his righteousness. That's grace. That's mercy. That's the gift of God. It's a free gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. So he didn't come to destroy it. He didn't come to add to it. He wasn't going to put something new and patch it. 
He wasn't going to pour in this new Holy Spirit overflowing uh, into it. See, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came upon those people that he was using at that time. In the New Testament, in, in, in the, the dispensation of grace, he pours his spirit into our heart. He gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit in it. We become new creations. And now we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that even, uh, I, and I didn't mention it, but during the wedding planning, um, during wedding planning, those in the wedding party were exempt from religious practices during those times. It's another reason why they weren't fasting. Because they were involved with the, with the bridegroom planning the wedding. Listen, is your heart hard? your heart critical is your heart looking to get for you or looking to come and know God and be set free so that you can go tell others and help plan the wedding supper help invite others to come and be set free where's your heart at is it for you is it selfish or is it for others see the son of man didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for others and we're supposed to be like him, giving ourselves away for others. And I have to say that I fell miserably. But we're still looking to be conformed into his image more and more each day. So, um, the heart of these that would cause division and point and look is yours critical? Are you looking to, to help or looking to criticize? Are you looking to build up and help people come to know Jesus? Or are you looking for their mistakes so you can point them out and feel good about yourself? It's a dangerous pharisaical practice where all we do is look at other people's problems so that we can feel good about ourselves. The next one we're going to see is about the Sabbath. Let's look. Verse 23, Mark 2. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields. Here goes Jesus again. His disciples are following, and it's on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, watch, he's, the Pharisees again are accusing his men, his people. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. And we have to be very careful with making accusations against people. Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what they're doing really is they're plucking some grain. You were allowed to grab some grain in a field and, and you rub it together. And then the, 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 the chafe, the chaff, I always get it wrong. I was looking at uh, my wife and she always gets me right. Uh, uh, you, you get that off of there and then you eat the grain. And they were accusing them of harvesting. How legalistic, how pharisaical. But they weren't accusing them of doing it just because they were doing it in somebody's field, but it was on the Sabbath. And um, they were accusing them of doing something that was not lawful, but nowhere, you can't find it anywhere in the word that they were not allowed to eat on the Sabbath. You can't find it. 
So, but he said to them, listen how he answers, and he always answers by pointing at the word and pointing at the truth. And this is where we should be when we answer people. Have you never read? Now that was a, not a poke, that was a punch in the belly. Because the Pharisees prided themselves in knowing the Old Testament, knowing the scriptures, and being legalistic and keeping the religious laws. Have you never read what David did? So it's just kind of a little shot. When he was in need and hungry, notice there was a need and he was hungry. He and those with him, remember it's in 1 Samuel 21, they're run, he's running from Saul. You know, David is a type of Christ and Saul is a type of the devil and the devil is chasing him and trying to kill him because he's trying to redeem the nation of Israel. Again, we have it here. They're attacking, they're accusing, they're chasing him. And it's under the spirit of Antichrist. It's under the spirit of the devil. The devil's the one bringing these accusations. But he uses hard, critical hearts. He uses hearts that don't surrender to the word of God to attack. Have you never read that what David did when he was in need and hungry? He, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. Now his point is that there's nowhere in Scripture that ever chides or says that David sinned. By eating the showbread. Now, if you remember, it's also called the bread of presence or showbread. It's right outside the Holy of Holies, which again is tied to the Day of Atonement because that's where you would go in, the high priest would, uh, to make this. But there was 12 loaves of bread. And that's the reason it's called bread of presence because those 12 loaves always represented the 12 tribes that they were in the presence of God. And even that God was in their presence. So, but, but uh, they would replace them every week the Sabbath morning, the priest would put in new ones, and then he'd take those 12, and the priests were the only ones that were allowed to eat them. But David and his men were in need, and they were hungry. And so they were allowed to take them and eat them because God wants to take care of our needs, and he doesn't want us. How would, he, how would it look to be a God who, who, who loves us? He wants to provide for us, take care of us, have a relationship with us, and, but if you're hungry or in need on the Sabbath, uh, sorry. Sorry. Can't have nothing to eat. You're on a force fast. And these men, are, are these, these Pharisees have made it a, uh, in their tradition, in their laws that they've added uh, that you couldn't even pluck grain on the Sabbath. There was a bunch of them. I don't know if they did like 700 of them off of one the law of the Sabbath. They made up a bunch of them you couldn't do. And, and, and they turned the Sabbath into something that became a burden upon the people instead of freedom. The Sabbath was sacred, yes. It was a sacred day, but it was a blessing and a privilege to be able to come and rest on the Sabbath day, just as God rested. God God wanted them to rest, and, and they was using their, their works and their legalism to put a burden upon someone instead of allowing them to be free to rest in God. And, and um, Jesus tells them, again, uh, he says to them, the, it's verse 27, the Sabbath was made for men, not man for the Sabbath. 
See, man was created before the Sabbath was. Man was created, and then the Sabbath, on the seventh day, God rested. And I don't even think the Sabbath was given till later in, in, in Exodus, actually, the practice of resting. Man shall work six days, and on the seventh he shall rest. But really, the rest, Jesus becomes our Sabbath rest. If you go look at Hebrews 4, he, he is the one that, that has brought us rest completely. But, but the rest is, I got some notes here I wanted to look at. Uh, the Sabbath rest is, is for us, uh, for man to rest, to refresh, maybe to reconsider what we have done during the week and reflect on that uh, and begin to repent spending time with God but it's also for your body to recover and you to prepare for the new day but you're giving that first day now we practice it on the first day of the week but every day is a rest every day we should rest every day we should refresh every day we should reconsider every day we should reflect every day we should remember what Christ has done for us and come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need and ask if there's any wicked way in us, then repent. But we forget that, listen, fasting doesn't change God. Listen, resting on the Sabbath does nothing for God. God is the unchanging one. Everything that's being done is for us to bring us into fellowship with the unchanging one. The Sabbath was made for man to rest and refresh and reconsider and, and reflect and remember the goodness of God and worship God. And the Pharisees had turned it into something that made it a complete burden where you couldn't even think of God because you're too worried about stepping on a crack. Today is the day for salvation. Today is the day to be delivered and to be at rest and to receive Jesus. He gives us rest. Every day is a Sabbath rest with God because we are now set free from death, from the curse that was upon us in Christ. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now he's saying he's God there, but notice again, he humbles himself as God because he says the son of man. And that's the same word for the when the children or the son is in the bride chamber with the bridegroom, why would you fast? Same word there again, son of man. Every time it's used, it's the same word. Therefore, the son of man is also Lord, kurios, supreme in authority over the Sabbath. In other words, he gave it to man. In other words, we can do what we want on the Sabbath, but it's there for us to rest. It's there for us to refresh. It's there for us to reflect and remember the goodness of God and worship him in the land of the living. But they want to pile burdens Chapter 3, 
again, Sabbath day. And he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Notice their hearts. They're looking to accuse him to the Sanhedrin. He is working on the Sabbath. He's doing things on the Sabbath. His disciples, they thresh grain on the Sabbath. They're harvesting. They're looking to have accusation against him. He knows it. He knows all men's hearts. Now, I, I want you to know that uh, this man with a withered hand, God knew where he was at too. But I think that, you know, just as our feet can be our walk, our hands can be the work we do for God. I think there is an analogy there that because of the, the way the religious authorities had dealt with people, that we see a withered hand, a withered work, work that's dried up. That's what this means. It means it's totally dried up. Where is, I got withered someplace. It means to dry up, to shrivel, to pine away, to wither away. There's no spirit in it anymore. It's dried up work that becomes tradition and religion. And I believe that this, this, this right here points to the work that these religious leaders are trying to get people to do in their apostate system. And it's all according to them and themselves and their laws and their rules. And they've cast away God's teachings, God's word. And they've made it their own. They're apostate. We're in danger in many places of doing that again. But they're watching him closely. Look at their hearts. They're not watching him to see miracles. They're not watching him uh, to see people healed and souls changed and lives changed. They're watching him to accuse him. Accuse means to be a plaintiff, to charge him with some offense, to object at the way he would do things. Are you watching Jesus closely? See, because we should be watching Jesus closely. Because he's our example of how we should thus live. He's our example of what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. As we see his love, his compassion, his mercy, and his grace. We should be watching him closely, not to accuse him. So we can ask the Holy Spirit to make me like that. Wearsby said, when the man of God looks into the word of God and sees the son of God, he's transformed by the spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. That's what we need to be doing in the word is looking closely to see Jesus, not to accuse him, but to be like him, to allow the Holy Spirit to conform us into his image for his glory. So he said to the man, verse 3, who had the withered hand, dried up hand, step forward. He calls him forward. He's calling you forward. Step forward out of your religious works. Step forward out of your dry life. And receive a new heart, new wine, and a new creation, a new life. We don't have to live dried up old lives in religious works, dead, with critical hearts. 
And we know he stepped forward because then he said to them, he looks at them as he's stepping forward. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill life? But they kept silent because they knew they would testify against themselves if they said anything. Because they already said it wasn't lawful to heal. It wasn't lawful to do anything on the Sabbath. That's the reason we come to Jesus. That's the reason we come together to minister to one another. The one another ministry that we might encourage. That's one of the things we're missing now, if you might remember. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The day is approaching faster than you could ever imagine, saint. Is your heart ready to help others grow? Are you looking to encourage and stir up love and good deeds? Or are you looking to forsake the assembling? The devil wants to forsake our assembling. <coughs> Jesus calls us forward to heal our withered works, withered system, our withered hands. <coughs> to give us a new heart and a hope and a future. And the devil wants to keep us from that freedom. Keep us from that healing of our soul and our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. He looks at them. Because they've been keeping people from being healed. They've been keeping people from uh, doing good on the Sabbath. See, the devil doesn't stop. The devil isn't resting. Evil's still going on on the Sabbath. And yet, religious people would tell these to stop doing good. Now, you got to think about it. It'd be like if you was in the service at church, and somebody fell down with a heart attack, and the preacher said, Oh, don't call an ambulance. Don't touch him. Let him lay there. It's the Sabbath day. Just let him lay there. If God chooses to let him live, we'll deal with him tomorrow. But you can't do nothing today. Extreme, huh? But that was their religious system that Jesus couldn't heal. They ignore. They ignore the miracle that Jesus is healing. They just don't want him to because of their rules. Jesus is changing life today. Jesus is saving souls today. He's putting his spirit in withered, dry souls that are dried up hard. They're hard. That's what's wrong with these Pharisees and scribes and these ruling authorities. Their hearts are hard. They're, they're crusty. They won't receive newness of life. They're stuck in their ways and they won't change. And Jesus wants us to step forward and say, I repent of my hard heart. Pour your spirit in me. Cause my hand to open up so that I can do your works and not my works. I can live for you and not for self. I can receive the newness of life. So he asked him, is it lawful? Notice he points to Moses. He points to the law. He points to what they call law. To do good or to do evil. To save life or to kill. And their silence convicts them. Their silence testifies against them because they had no answer. There's no wisdom or counsel against the Lord. His word is true. He has came to save. He's came to heal. 
And you can't speak up against him. And when he had looked around at them, notice this, he's looking at them. Eyes of compassion, eyes of love, love incarnate. For all of you who've changed what love is, all of you have changed. He looks at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Listen, he did this as a testimony right in their faces. He was angry with them. It's, a, it's the word ogor. O-R-G-E. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's violent passion. It's justifiable anger. It's abhorrence and indignation against them. It can mean vengeance and wrath. Remember when he was making the whip and turning over tables and he had the righteous indignation and anger? It's the same word. Interestingly enough, it comes from a word that means to stretch oneself, to reach out after. And that's what he's telling the man to do. He was grieved. Oh, it didn't hurt him. They were hurting souls. They were misrepresenting who he was and his love and compassion and mercy. The good works that he wanted to do. The Sabbath was made for man to rest and to refresh and to reflect and remember and to worship. It was made for man, not for, not, not for God. He was grieved at their hard hearts. He wanted them to come to salvation. He was grieved at them living for self and doing their own religious system. Notice it's the hearts. Because we're talking about critical hearts. We're talking about hearts of faith. We're talking about hearts that would repent and turn and follow him and invite others to come to their house so that Jesus could speak to them. We're talking about the heart because it's the heart that matters most. We're to keep our hearts with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. It's the heart that God is marrying. It's our soul. It's the middle of us. That's the part that's to be married to God that's going to be with him forever or separated forever if it's the hardness of heart that will not receive the newness of life and repent and turn from our sin. He was grieved. Listen to this. Grieved means. And I, and I couldn't find this word used anywhere else in Scripture except in this context. It means, Vine says it means to be grieved or afflicted together with a person. See, it's not grieving God's heart but for him. It's for the, the souls that he come to save, the ones that want hope, the ones that he died for or will soon die for. But in his economy, he already has laid his life down for everyone. It means to afflict jointly. See, because Jesus is acquainted with our grief. Jesus is a, as our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's acquainted with our grief. So when you afflict his people, you're afflicting him. So he's there jointly and he's grieved at their hard hearts that would put burdens upon people instead of calling them to come and see, taste and see that the Lord is good, receive salvation, be delivered. 
receive the spirit and don't have to be dry bones. You can have life again. So he tells him to stretch out his hand and he does. Listen, I want to go look. I told you I would turn back to fasting again. And let's look at Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7. I want to read the whole chapter of God speaking um, through the prophet Zechariah. It's in the fourth year of King Darius. They're in captivity. They've been in captivity, I think, for 70 years now. God's getting ready to bring them out of bondage. And I want to turn it back to this Again, chapter 7, Zechariah, and we'll come back and close our lesson. Now, in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of Chislev, when the people sent Sherezer and Regamelech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? See them fasting? See them weeping? And look at verse 4. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? See, fasting is for us. It's a physical thing that we do to deal with a spiritual problem of sin. A spiritual heart of sin. They had went into captivity for 70 years because of their sin. They weren't fasting for God. It's for us. The Sabbath is for us. Fasting is for us. That we could draw near to God. That we could deal with our sin-filled hard hearts before God. That we would know, yes, God's desire in certain things. But it's not to change God. God's the unchanging one. It's to change us. Fasting is for us. We, verse 6, When you eat and when you drink, do you not drink for yourselves? It's for our flesh. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? See, they should have been fasting and mourning over the sin that had put them into captivity. Obeying the words of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion. Everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Listen. This is better than fasting. Obey is better than sacrifice and, and, and to heed than the, than the fat of rams. We have rebellion and witchcraft in our hearts and we need to fast to deal with our hearts. Fasting is not for God. It's for us. 
And God said to just do like the Pharisees and fast just for man to see in a religious practice rather than to fast, to repent of our sin, to afflict our souls, to remember we want to be like him and we need to deal with our heart. We're not fasting for, for God. We're not fasting to twist his arm. We fast so that he'll help us deal with sin in our life and we'll repent and our flesh will not dominate and we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh so we can walk in the spirit. He says that we should execute true justice, obey his character, show mercy and compassion to our brothers and to others. Take care of widows and orphans. Don't plan evil in our hearts. Notice it's his it's our hearts that he's after. He wants us to obey in our hearts. And we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thank the Lord for his grace and mercy that he's given us a position as heirs of righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The penalty for our sin has been taken. Listen, we've been given a position of righteousness. The power of sin has been taken. The power is death. But the practice needs to be taken out of our lives. Look at verse 11, Zechariah 7, 11. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. He's, he's bringing up what they did before. Their lack of obedience. And that's what we see is going on in the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees and those who are watching to accuse. In Mark chapter 3, 2 and 3. Therefore, excuse me, thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts to 70 years of captivity. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. He stopped raising up judges to help them. But I scattered them with a whirlwind. God is not mocked. You sow to the wind, and you reap the whirlwind among the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate, after them so that no one passed through or returned for they made the pleasant land desolate their sin their their rebellion their hard hearts made the land desolate let's look back mark chapter 2 again they're looking to accuse again their hard hearts he's angry at their hard hearts He's grieved that their hard hearts have turned things into tradition that would pile burdens upon men who couldn't even come and be healed or expect a healing in the congregation of the sanctuary, in the synagogue, a place that was supposed to represent his presence, meeting with him. He's a loving God who wants to heal. He's a loving God who came to save. He has mercy and compassion, but he wants us to obey. Helps if I get on the right page. So he's angered and grieved at the hardness of their heart. How is your heart today, saint? 
Is your heart hard? Do you go to church? Do you listen to a sermon and go on with life the same way as you always did? Or does it cut? Does God remind you? Does God call you to repentance? Do we need to fast to deal with our flesh so that our soul can be healed? Is your heart critical? Divisive? Being controlled by Satan and his forces and the flesh self? Or is it a heart that's quick to follow, looking to do the work of the ministry and save souls and build others up to heal even on the Sabbath? What a day. Every day is the Sabbath, my friend. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He stretched out his hand. He obeyed the Lord Jesus is what we all need to do. And his hand was made. It was restored. It was restored again. Back to its perfect health. What did they do? They said, wow, the work of God, the mighty hand of God, he's healed them. No, their hearts were so hard. Look what it says they did in verse 6, and we'll close. Then the Pharisees went out. Kind of reminds you of Judas going out, and it was dark. The Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now, the Herodians were uh, Jews who were promoting Herod, trying to restore the rule of Herod the Great and his evil family. I want to talk about that as we close. But they went out, immediately plotted. The word uh, uh, is took counsel, is what it says in the King James. Now, I want you to understand this. It's the exact same word for marred, ruined. Talking about putting new wine into an old wineskin, it would be ruined or marred. It's, it just means destroyed fully. It would perish See, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law or to make it perish. He came to fulfill it. He didn't come to put old wine, or excuse me, new wine into old wineskins, hard hearts. He came to give new hearts to bring a new covenant in his blood. But their hearts wanted to kill him, to destroy him. They went out and took counsel how to destroy him fully, that he would perish and die. They want to kill him. John 10.10 says, The thief does not come but to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus speaking. He's telling his disciples that in John 10.10. He said, I have come that they may have life and that more abundantly. It's a sense of beyond life, a super abundantly in quantity. It's a, it's a superior in quality is what he's talking about in the abundance of life. But the devil here we see wants to destroy hearts, harden hearts. He wants people to live in, in culturanity or in tradition and laws and pile up burdens on people 
and never come to the saving knowledge of Jesus and build a love relationship where their heart can be can be restored, or excuse me, their heart can become new. They can become new creations. God becomes angry with those that are interfering with people getting to him and being healed. He's angry here. He's grieved here. He's afflicted here with his people. And they want to destroy him. Listen, we are called to bring people to God. We are called to bring people to see his love. We're called to take his light to the world. We're called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he commanded us. We're not supposed to be stumbling blocks in the way, making up our own rules, our own dress codes, our own little doctrines. Get them to Jesus, even if you have to take the roof off the house and lower them down into his presence. We want people to come into the presence of Almighty God. We want them to do it in the Sunday morning service, the Monday morning service, the Tuesday morning service, the Wednesday morning service, the Thursday morning service, the Friday morning service, every day of the week. And time is very short, my friend. The Antichrist is coming. The day is ending and a new day is going to dawn. We need to wake up and get the word out any way that we can that Jesus is Lord and that, that the enemy wants to rob, kill, and destroy. But Christ came to give us life and that more abundantly. Where's your heart at? Is it hard? Is it complacent? Is it content? Do you just go about bobbling around life? I don't know where that word came from. Bobbling around life. Or are you looking to grow and allow the Spirit to water you? Have you stretched out your hand so that you can do the work of the ministry? Have you shod your feet so you can take the gospel of peace to others? Listen, are you putting on Christ? Have you received His righteousness so you can walk in it? Are you looking to accuse Christ? I've got an issue with Christ. Be careful with that. Are you looking to accuse his people? Be careful with that also. It's sowing discord. Surrender to his great love. Let him give you a new heart. Let him pour his spirit in you. Let him stretch out your hand. He'll call you. Step forward. Today's the day for salvation. Don't be someone who's looking to accuse. Come and bow at his feet. Come and surrender. And be his child. And begin to prepare yourself for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Prepare yourself as a bride. And that does include fasting. 
beating our flesh into subjection so that our spirit can rule and reign in our lives. Father, thank you. We pray that our hearts would be open before you and that your spirit could do heart surgery and wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us for your glory. Use our hands, use our feet, use all of our resources, all that is within us, Lord, to bring other souls to salvation. Protect us, Lord, from the evil one. Give us wisdom in these dark days. Thank you for your light that shows clearly our path in front of us and the way we're going. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take the chosen home. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you.